this morning, uh, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, and we are actually just continuing uh, where we left off last week. Uh, you typically, uh, sometimes at Christmas, we will pause for a moment and, um, and look at a particular text uh, that relates to the Christmas season. Uh, but in God's providence, uh, this text perfectly aligns with the Christmas season. And the 70 weeks that we find here in Daniel chapter 9 are a, a proclamation that Daniel receives of the arrival and the work and the victory of Jesus Christ as he comes to this earth. So what better place to spend our time this morning than just continuing through this book and looking here at Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 20 through 27. Again, uh, what has been oftentimes referred to as uh, the 70 weeks and the Messiah. So if you found your way there, and if you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you there in the pew. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command is issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, to give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war and desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. You can be seated this morning. Let's recap just a little bit from where we left off last week. Daniel is receiving this vision in the first year of Darius and the Medo-Persian Empire. He's praying and he seeks the Lord because as he was reading through the book of Jeremiah, Daniel realized and recognized the fact that according to the prophet Jeremiah, this period of exile was proclaimed to be 70 years. And Daniel now knew that the 70 years were coming to an end. And Daniel also knew and trusted in the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God. And if he's a covenant-keeping God, then he knows that whatever God has proclaimed, God will bring it to pass. However, Daniel also understood that God is a God who works by means. And the greatest means by which God often works is by the means of prayer. And so we pick up here today in verse 20, where Daniel is giving a brief synopsis of what he had been praying about. Notice there in verse 20, he says, Now as I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people and presenting my supplication for the Lord. Number one, Daniel was praying aloud. 
Now, we're not going to spend too much time about this, but there is something I think that all of us probably recognize when we pray. Now, oftentimes, we're not in a place where we can pray aloud. There's nothing wrong with praying quietly to ourselves. But I do think we find in Scripture, oftentimes, there are places where people pray aloud and vocally. Uh, because I think it's a good thing as we pray it, it helps us to emphasize more and to declare more what it is that we are asking the Lord. And it lets us to verbalize those things, I think, in a much more bold way. So Daniel's praying aloud, but more importantly, I want you to notice what he's doing here. It says he was confessing his sin. Now, that should be, as Christians, very logical for us. But we understand that as Christians, the Scripture tells us, our sins, past, present, and future, have been covered under the blood of Jesus. But the Scripture also tells us that we are to confess our sins to Him daily. We confess those things that we have done wrong. We confess those things that we should have done and we didn't. And hopefully all of us in this room make a regular, habitual practice of confessing our sin to the Lord. But notice Daniel here doesn't just say that he was confessing his sin. He says, I was also confessing the sin of my people Israel. Daniel was praying not just for forgiveness for himself, but for forgiveness for the entire nation of Israel. And as we talked about last week, Daniel is a man who had been recognized by anyone who was around him as a man who was a godly man. He was a man who sought to live his life, to be pleasing unto the Lord. But here he is confessing the sins of Israel as if they are his own sins. It was Matthew Henry who said, those who are heartily concerned for the glory of God, the welfare of the church, and the souls of men will mourn for the sins of others as well as their own. We should be brokenhearted by the sins of others that we see around us. Oftentimes, let's be honest, oftentimes we are guilty at looking at the sins of others and pointing the finger at them, but not being grieved over them and mournful over them and praying for them. Praying for those sins that God would forgive those others and forgive us for our presumptiveness in that. So Daniel is praying. He's pouring his heart out to the Lord, confessing sin, his sin, the sin of the nation. But then he also says he's presenting his supplication. And what was his supplication? Well, you remember from last week that it was his desire that his exile would come to an end. Uh, that the nation would be able to return back to Jerusalem, that they would be able to rebuild the city, but most importantly, be able to rebuild the temple so that they can continue worshiping God the way that God had demanded for them to worship Him. But Daniel's prayer was not a selfish prayer. Daniel's prayer, and he lays this out in the previous verses, Daniel's prayer, ultimately, he says, God, it is a shame for your name and for your glory for the city of Jerusalem to lie destroyed. It is a tarnish on your name for the temple to lie in ruins. So, Lord, allow us to go back and to rebuild this city, to rebuild this temple, that it would be a testimony to your name and to your glory and to your fame. Daniel's heart was all about the glory of God. It was not about him. It was not about the nation itself. Even though they would reap the benefits of this, Daniel's heart was one that he understood how holy and glorious God was, and he did not want God's name to be tarnished in the land. For far too long in his thoughts has God's name been trampled down. Now, he says, Lord, now is the time for your name to be redeemed, for your name to be elevated, and for the people of the world to see you, who you truly are. And as Daniel's praying, verse 21 tells us that he receives an answer. And an answer that comes, he says there in verse 21, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel came to me. And before Daniel even finishes praying, 
Before he's even said amen and opened up his eyes, the angel, angel Gabriel comes before him and gives him this answer. He tells us in verse 22 that he comes to give him wisdom and understanding. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us specifically why the answer came to Daniel so rapidly, but Gabriel does tell Daniel three things. Number one, he tells us in, in verse 23, he says, at the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued to come to you. So as Daniel was beginning to pray, as he began to say and to open up his heart, the command was issued for Daniel to come. Again, it was Matthew Henry who said, if we pray with fervency for that which God has promised, we may by faith take the promise as an immediate answer to prayer for he is faithful that is promised. What Matthew Henry is saying is that if, if we pray on behalf of something that God has promised to do, the answer to the prayer is not what happens next. The answer to the prayer is in the fact that God has already promised to do it. So we can be confident in that fact because God has already said this. So as Daniel is praying, the answer to Daniel's prayer has already been given because God had said, after 70 years, I will redeem my people. After 70 years, I will bring them out of this exile and restore them back to where they used to be. So Daniel understood this. So as he's praying, he's praying boldly and expectantly. Now, brothers and sisters, we don't have time to unfold all of this this morning, but then we're going to get here to the 70 weeks, and we talked about Daniel's prayer last week. But think about how that also relates to us in our Christian life today. Think of all the things that God has promised on behalf of us as his children. And when we pray, do we pray expecting, do we pray and are confident in the fact that our prayers are already answered because of the promises that God has given I think oftentimes we pray, we see a promise of God, and we pray, and we hope that God will be faithful to his promise. It's a shame on us, because God is always faithful to his promise. There's never a time where we pray, based on God's promises, that he will not do what he has said he will do. He will always do it. And so the reason that the angel Gabriel came was because Daniel was praying in such an expected way. Gabriel is already sent out. As Daniel begins to pray and connect himself with this promise of God, God sends Gabriel all to come to him immediately. Gabriel also tells him in verse 23, he says, For you are highly esteemed. Now some have equated this to Daniel's godly lifestyle because the entirety of this time in Babylon, he committed himself to the Lord. He did not give himself over to idolatry. He did not give himself over to immorality. But he committed himself even in a foreign land surrounded by all these temptations. Daniel kept himself pure. He kept himself holy before the Lord. And I think there's a certain element of that. But I also think there's an element that Daniel is highly esteemed here because of what he is about to hear. The angel Gabriel is about to give Daniel something that considers him or puts him in a place of being highly esteemed among all men. Because Gabriel is about to declare to Daniel who the Messiah is going to be and what the Messiah is going to do. The promise that God is giving here, there would be a promise to all people that Jesus Christ is going to come and to make atonement for sin so that we can be reconciled back to God. And it is a esteemed message that each one of us in this room this morning have received when we heard the gospel. Think about that for just a moment. 
What, what greater thing, what greater news in the world is there that you could receive? Amen. Now, some people might think it's the news that you just inherited $10 million. But guess what happens if you study, if you look at the news and you watch what happens when somebody wins the lottery and inherits money? What typically happens after a short amount of time? They've wasted it all. It's all gone. It was good news for a season, and it's gone. There is no greater message that has ever been delivered to your ears than the fact that God has sent his son to come to this earth to be the propitiation for our sins. There's no other greater message. Nothing else in this world compares to that. And so Gabriel says, Daniel, you are highly esteemed because what you're about to hear is a message of God's promise to his people, a message of reconciliation, a message of deliverance, a message of hope. And that's why this ties in so beautifully with our service today. Because the message of Christmas is not just about a baby lying in a manger. The message of Christmas is that God has sent his son to this earth to be our redeemer, to be our deliverer, to be the one who brings peace to a troubled world, to bring the one who brings peace between our relationship between us and God. And as angel Gabriel would later tell Joseph, we shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's the hope of Christmas. That Jesus Christ has come to save his people from their sins. And thirdly, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel, he says, you need to listen carefully and give serious attention to what you are about to hear. The message that unfolds here is, is somewhat complicated in, in some regards. In fact, one commentator has described the 70 weeks found here in chapter 9 as a dismal swamp of interpretation. And, and that is because there are so many different interpretations that can be eluded from this text. Uh, there are, and perhaps it is, again, described as one of the most debated passages in the Bible. And when I say the variety of interpretations are, are, are large, I mean by that that entire forests have given their lives for the pages of interpretations on the 70 weeks that have been written. However, if we stick to the contextual idea of what we've been trying to do in this book, to look for the plainest and the simplest explanation, we discover that much of the complication and confusion about this chapter is, is entirely unnecessary. Now, when we look at Daniel chapter 9 and we look at these 70 weeks, notice there in verse 24, he says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, there are three main schools of thought that come to these 70 weeks. First is that this refers to the period after Antiochus, uh, when he destroyed the temple uh, earlier, or later from Daniel, but earlier from what would happen uh, before the true destruction of the temple in AD 70. Now, the second school of thought, and, and this is one that is most common amongst uh, what we would call dispensationalism, is that it, 70 weeks points first to the coming of Christ, uh, but then there is what they would call a parenthesis between the 489 weeks and then that last week uh, is still yet to come in the future. And then the third interpretation is that these 70 weeks refers to the coming of Christ, the fulfillment of Christ and his work, and then the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. 
Now, obviously, we don't have time this morning to look at all three of those. So we're going to be focusing our interpretation this morning through that third view. Uh, that the 70 weeks points towards the arrival of Christ, uh, his uh, completion of his work, and then that destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, it's important for us to understand what he's talking about here. Because again, just as a, as a face value reading, if you've never read from Daniel chapter 9 this morning, or before this morning, you may be looking at this and, and, and saying, well what, well, what is Gabriel talking about here? What are these 70 weeks? Well, these 70 weeks are literally, if you translate it out in the original language, are 70 sevens. So we can describe these as weeks of years. So that means that for each day of the week is a complete year. So it's 70 weeks of seven years each. So 70 times 7 would equal 490 years. So Gabriel is talking about a period of time that once it began would last for 490 years. Now, as we're going to see in our passage this morning, these weeks are broken up into three different periods. There's a first, a, a period of seven weeks, which would be 49 years. Then there's a period of 62 weeks, which would be 434 years. And then there's a period of one week. Now, within these 70 weeks, there are six specific things described to us in verse 24 that must come to pass during this period of time. Notice what he says there. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to, number one, finish the transgression. Number two, make an end of sin. Number three, make atonement for iniquity. Number four, bring in an everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal up the vision and prophecy. And number six, to anoint the most holy place. Now, if you look at those and you read those things, I believe it's very easy in the context of what we're thinking about this morning, to see the reference to Christ that's contained there in verse 24. To see that there's a clear prophecy of what Christ is going to do when he arrived on the earth. Now before we look at Christ's fulfillment of those things, I want to take just a moment to see how these years relate to us on a timeline. Because it's important for us to see how those 490 years lay out over the period of time. Because again... We're understanding that God is giving a prophecy here through the angel Gabriel to Daniel. And it's important, if God is giving a prophecy, to see how those things actually laid out, picture perfectly, in the space of human history. So the question is, is when does the 70 years, or these 70 years of weeks, begin? Now, most commentators agree that the time of this begins in 457 B.C., in 457 B.C., Artaxerxes gave a decree to Ezra, which gave Ezra the command and the permission to go back and to begin to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And so at that point in time, in 457 B.C., the first part of this 490 years began. Now you'll notice there, it says in verse 25, he says, You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, again, this would be the decree of Artaxerxes to Ezra, he said to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So there was this period of seven weeks first, it says there in verse 25, and during periods of difficulty. It was during these first seven weeks, so again, seven weeks uh, or, uh, of years, seven times seven would be 49, and there would be periods of difficulty during this time. As they're rebuilding the city, as they're rebuilding the temple, they suffered 
Uh, many times there was complications along the way, but finally the temple building was complete. And the scripture tells us there that after those seven weeks, there would be 62 weeks. So, if you calculate those other 62 weeks out, again, 434 years compared to 49 years, and you take out year zero, because in the transition from B.C. to A.D., there is a missing year there that has to be accounted for, that period of the seven weeks and the 62 weeks brings us all the way up to A.D. 27. So what happened in A.D. 27? Well, A.D. 27 was when Jesus began his earthly ministry. Now, the reason this is important, right, is because, again, we're trying to see the perfect fulfillment of all of these weeks here in the book of Daniel. So this leaves us now in A.D. 27 with one remaining period of seven years, or one week, which in verse 27 tells us that he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of that week he will stop the sacrifices and the grain offering. Well, how long is half of a week? We know that a week is seven days, so half of a week would be what? Three and a half years, in looking at this from Daniel's perspective. So three and a half years from when Jesus began his earthly ministry, what significant event happened that three and a half years in that Jesus was crucifixion? So now we have a timetable to look at, right? And so we can perfectly see how what Gabriel had prophesied to Daniel is, is perfectly told to us through the course of human events and history that actually happened. When Artaxerxes gave this command, Ezra began to rebuild the temple. It lasted for those seven weeks. And then after it was completed, then 62 weeks of years later, Jesus came upon the scene and began his earthly ministry. And halfway through that first week of years, the Messiah was crucified. Now, with that in mind, let's move back to verses 24 and then following, and let's see how Jesus actually is pictured through these verses. We want to break them down. Now, all of these verses, from verse 26 all the way down, all happen in this period of 490 years, or the 70 weeks, but they're all looking at it from a different perspective or, or perhaps a factor. Now, Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary, breaks them down this way. He says verse 24 covers the entire period. Verse 25 divides the first, um, the first sevens. Verse 26 describes the final seven in indefinite terms. And verse 27 describes the final seven in more detail. Now, we've already mentioned verse 25 and its discussion of the rebuilding of the temple. And it was what Daniel was praying for. Right? So Daniel gets in verse 25 the specific answer that he was seeking. Right? He's praying that God would come in and allow them to go back and to rebuild the temple. But much as it is in God's prerogative, the answer that Daniel gets is much greater than what he even anticipated. Because Daniel's praying for a rebuilding of the temple so that they can worship God again. But the promise is, is that more than the news of a rebuilt temple, Daniel receives the promise of the one who's coming who would do away with the need for earthly sacrifice. He would do away for the need to have to go to a high priest. Daniel here is receiving a promise from God that there's coming a day when you will be able to go directly to God. When you will no longer have to make sacrifices for sin. When one will come who will make a way for you to have a perfect relationship with God. Let's look at these predictions and promises. Number one, notice there in verse 24, it says that during this period of time that there will be one who comes to finish the transgression. That word finish the transgression means to take away the sin. It means to, to destroy the work of the devil. 
And notice here that it doesn't say to take away, to finish your transgression. It says to finish the transgression. Because here God is referring to the fact through Gabriel that Jesus is not just the propitiation for the sins of the Jewish people, but he is the propitiation of sins for all people, from all people groups, not just Jews, but Gentile alike. Jesus is coming to bruise the head of the serpent. What was it that Jesus said as he hung there on the cross? He said, it is finished. He is coming to finish the transgression of sin. Secondly, it tells us that he's coming to make an end of sin. And what he means by that is to do away with it, that it might not be a judgment against us. And when we are in Christ, we are no longer held into account for our sins. We are no longer being judged for them because we are no longer being accused by them. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, but in Christ, our sins have been pardoned. We are no longer able to be condemned because of our sin, because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Amen. Thirdly, it says to make an atonement for iniquity. This speaks to the idea of reconciliation. From a sacrifice to satisfy the justice and the demands of God. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to be the atoning sacrifice for sin. We've talked about this before. Remember when Jesus died on the cross? Jesus was not dying on the cross to face the wrath of the devil. Jesus was dying on the cross to face the wrath of God. Amen. Jesus has saved us from God to God. He saved us from the wrath and anger of a holy and just God to the love and mercy and grace of our saving God. Jesus came and he bore upon himself the iniquity of us all. He became sin who knew no sin that we might be called the righteousness of God. He satisfied those just demands. He made peace between God and man. Fourthly, it says to bring in an everlasting righteousness. God could have justly punished us. God did not deserve, God did not have to give us anything. We did not deserve anything because of who we were. So God could have rightly punished us. But Christ came that we might have a new righteousness. The scripture tells us that in Christ, we have received or we are clothed in his righteousness. That means we're as used to, if you look at us and how God saw us, he saw us in our unrighteousness, in our sinfulness. But now, because we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, when God looks at us, he no longer sees us as who we were, but now he sees us as Christ is. He sees the righteousness of Christ in our life. Now, oftentimes, we struggle with that viewpoint. We struggle with that perspective. But brothers and sisters, be encouraged this morning that when God looks at you, he sees his son. Because his righteousness has been applied to your life. His righteousness has been wrapped around you. This is an everlasting righteousness first because it's in its application. Because when was this righteousness decreed to you? It was decreed to you before the foundation of the world. Because this plan came into place that God would send his son before the world was ever created, before God ever said, let there be light. But it was also applied to you and decreed to you, and perhaps be the better word, because the scripture tells us that each one of us in this room this morning we're predestined before the foundation of the world. If you're here this morning and in Christ, you're in Christ because before again, before God ever said, let there be light, he said, that one was mine. And because that one is his, Christ's righteousness was destined for that person. Amen. So it's universal. 
It's universal and everlasting in its application. But and be encouraged this morning, brothers and sisters, that it's also everlasting in its entirety. Yeah. Because Christ's righteousness does not expire. There's no expiration date on the righteousness of Christ. Aren't you glad for that this morning? Yeah. Aren't you glad that there's not an amount of righteousness that's given to you, but if you live a certain number of years, you finally reach the point where his righteousness no longer applies? No, his righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. It started before the world ever started, and it will last until all eternity. Number five. This is to seal up the vision and the prophecy. And this makes reference to all the Old Testament prophecies and predictions about Christ. By sealing up the vision and the prophecy, what, what the angel Gabriel is saying is that when Christ comes, when Messiah comes, he will perfectly fulfill every prophecy and vision that had been given about the Messiah. This is one of those verifiable testimonies that Christ truly is the Messiah. But there's, there's no way that any human being in their own effort or strength can ever perfectly fulfill in their own lives, by their own destiny, or by their own trying, every prophecy of the Messiah. But yet Jesus perfectly fulfilled every single one of them. And in doing so, he sealed up that vision. He, he, made, he brought a reference to them, or brought an end to all of them. He accomplished every single one of them. And then sixthly, there in verse 24, Gabriel says, that he's going to anoint the most holy place. Now, what is this in reference to? Well, we know that the holy place for the nation of Israel was that temple. It was the place where the presence of God dwelt. But now, what is the holy place? Well, perhaps the better question would be, who is the holy place? It's Jesus. He came to be the final high priest. He came to be that fulfillment of all those things. So as Jesus comes, he is anointed. This Holy Spirit anointed him for his work. The Holy Spirit testified of the fact of who Christ was. And so Christ came away, came to make a way for us to get to God through himself. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There's a beautiful picture that happens there after the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember when the earth shakes and the skies darken? The scripture tells us that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. We have no reconcilable idea of how terrifying and jaw-dropping that would have been for the Jewish people. This was a place, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelt. It was a place that only one man, once a year, dared enter into. Because God's presence was there. And then all of a sudden, this veil is torn. And again, the scripture tells us it's torn from top to bottom. Why is that significant? Because this veil was a very, very tall and heavy curtain. And it was not like anything that could have just been ripped by human hands. And even if human hands would have tried to do it, they would have tried to do it from the bottom up. But it tells us that it's torn from the top down. God was making a definitive statement right. in this moment. Amen. That I am no longer here in this building. That this has been done. This has been done away with. And I have sent my promised one. I have sent the Messiah. So Jesus came and he has been anointed as the most holy place. He is the one by whom we go to God the Father. Jesus perfectly fulfilled 
We know all Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, but now, just looking specifically here, we see that here in these 70 weeks, Gabriel has promised and said that these things will be accomplished and that Jesus has perfectly and did perfectly fulfill every single one. Now go with me down to verse 26. The first part of verse 26 says that after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Some translations put it this way, the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. That word cut off there means to die a violent death. So when we look at the picture of Jesus Christ, we understand perfectly here, and it says it there, it says the Messiah, we know it's talking about Jesus, will be cut off, he will die a violent death and have nothing. It means not for himself. Jesus did not die on his own behalf. Jesus was not dying because he deserved to die. Jesus was dying because we deserve to die. Amen. He was dying on our behalf. He was coming in our stead. It's the reason that Jesus said, greater love have no man than this, and he laid down his life for a brother. Jesus was demonstrating the fact that the greatest love that could ever be shown was that God would send him to come to die a death he did not deserve for a people who did not care. He was willing to go and he was willing to die. He suffered. He was cut off, but not for his own self. He did it for the sins of his people. Again, remember the words of Gabriel. Then in verse 27, we see two more things that are related to Christ. Now, in different interpretations of this passage, they'll begin to say that verse 27 points to some point in the future um, that uh, these other parts of the week are, are some time period yet to come, uh, an uncertain time period. But I think you'll see this morning that if we look at this again in the context of the simplest and plainest interpretation, we'll see that again verse 27 very clearly refers to what Christ has done. Verse 27 tells us he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Now someone asked, well, what is the covenant that Christ has done? What's the covenant? What's the new covenant? A covenant of grace, not by the law. A covenant that he confirmed through his doctrine, through his miracles, through his death, and his resurrection. In fact, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifer sprinkling to those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now listen to this. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. But Jesus Christ came to bring a new covenant. And so he makes this firm covenant, he says, with the many. Now, who are the many? Well, this is a reference here to the fact that Jesus Christ came to bring this covenant not just to the Pharisees, or not to the rich, not to the successful, not to the high and mighty. But Jesus came to bring this new covenant to the many. He came to bring it to the weak, and to the poor, and to the downtrodden, 
and to the Gentiles and not just the Jews. This new covenant was not just to say God's people is this one nation who's been isolated throughout human history, but now God is saying these people are going to reject me, and now my gospel goes to the entirety of the world, to every tribe and tongue, to every people group, to every nation. Here comes this good news. And then he continues. He says, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offerings. I already referred just a moment ago to what happened there in the destruction or in Jesus' death when the temple was torn and the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Because in his death, Jesus Christ brought an, an end to the need for all Levitical sacrifices. Amen. It wasn't inherently that the sacrifices were a bad thing, for right? because they had been given by God. God had decreed that these sacrifices would be, would be performed on behalf of the people throughout the entire of the Old Testament as a way to offer temporary forgiveness for the sins of the people. There would be a scapegoat, and the hands would be laid, and the goat would be sent out of the wilderness as a sign of their sins being cast out into the wilderness. But it was not permanent. It had to be done over and over and over again. And God is saying now, one has come that is the final sacrifice for sin. As the writer of Hebrews says, there's no longer the need for the, the blood of boils and goats, bulls and goats and heifers. Now one has come to bring a new covenant and a sacrifice for sin. So in Jesus' death, the sacrifices in the temple were over. Now, the Jews continued to perform them. They continued to do it, but it was nothing but empty ritual. There was no presence of God there. There was no hope of forgiveness. There was no redemptive quality in the sacrifices they kept performing because in his death, Jesus brought an end to the sacrifice and to the grain offering. Those things had been a shadow of what was to come, and Jesus was the substance of it. And so now that the substance had come, there was no longer any need for the shadows. All of it was brought to an end. Now, I said at the beginning... There were three things that we find in this text. One was the rebuilding of the temple. Two was the arrival of Christ. But thirdly was the final destruction of the temple in AD 70. And we find that pictured both in verses 26 and 27. Look at the latter part of 26. He says, And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And his end will come of a flood. Even to the end, there will be war and desolations are determined. The final part of this has to do with this destruction of Jerusalem. The people are the Romans. And the prince is Titus. Titus was the one who took uh, his army and led a siege on Jerusalem. Now history tells us, Josephus tells us, that Titus at a certain point would have desired to stop the complete destruction of Jerusalem the temple, and the great destruction of Jerusalem. But the Jewish people had been so obstinate in their opposition to the Romans, had been so dogmatic in their fighting against them, but by this point, the Roman armies were so furious at what the Jews had done that they could not be stopped. That even Titus could not hold back his armies from completely destroying the city. But now, why is this important? Well, it's important because of what Jesus tells us in Matthew 24. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, that not one stone would be left upon the other. He tells us that the destruction of Jerusalem would be complete, that it would be total, 
and, and also that it would be terrible. He says his end will come with a flood. This is kind of in reference here to the idea of, of how the flood came upon the entire earth in the days of Noah. That it would come with such complete and total and vicious destruction. Now notice you go down to verse 27. And he says, on the wings of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. As the temple was, before the temple was destroyed there in AD 70, Titus and the Romans lifted up or uh, ensigns or flags of the Roman government and armies inside the temple there in Jerusalem. It was a desecration of God's holy place. They performed the same things inside of the temple. And the temple was, um, was, was blasphemed. And this is what Jesus is writing of. Again, in Matthew 24, in verse 15. He says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So Jesus now is, is referencing what would come to happen in AD 70. And he's hearkening back to this prophecy that Gabriel had given to Daniel. Gabriel is telling Daniel, there's coming a day after Jesus comes, after the end of the sacrifices has, has been brought to an end through Christ's death. Basically, the Jews are going to continue to try to do these sacrifices. So for some 40 years after Jesus' death, the Jews continued to go to the temple. They continued to offer sacrifices, but they finally reached a point where God has said, no, this is over. And so he allows, through his providence, the Romans to come in to completely destroy the temple. Not just to go in and desecrate it, not just to go in and perform abominations, not just to go in and turn the tables over. No, the scripture tells us, Jesus tells us, in that day, not one stone will be left upon the other. But the entire temple will be brought to the ground in crumbling rock. Why? Because God said this is done. And God says, if you won't listen to the Messiah, if you won't listen to what Jesus has said, if you won't acknowledge him, then I will forbade you from doing this anymore. I will not even let you have a place to do this. So Jesus is warning them in Matthew 24. He says, when you see this abomination of desolation, when you see the destruction of the temple, he tells and warns his people, he says, you need to understand what's getting ready to happen. He says the entire city is getting ready to be destroyed. They're not going to spare anyone. So he tells them, he says, those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever's on his house stop must not go back and get the things that are in his house. He says, run to the mountains, flee. He says, for there will be great tribulation, such as not occurred from the beginning of the world until now. Jesus is warning his people there in Matthew 24 of these things that are to come and to get out of the city quickly. But for Daniel... Daniel here is being told of two very important things. Number one, he's being told, yes, you're going to be able to go back. Yes, you're going to be able to rebuild the temple. And yes, we'll continue to do things the way we've always done. But the end of this chapter also helps Daniel to understand that this temple is not permanent. This is not what you put your hope in. This building is not what you're looking for. This is really not what you're longing for. And so God gives Daniel this beautiful glimpse into the arrival of his promised one. Into the arrival of the Messiah who would come to accomplish that which the blood of bulls and goats could not do. 
to fully bring an end to the sacrifices, to fully bring an end to everything that God had promised that he would do, that he would send one, that he would send his Messiah to come and to be the one who would reconcile his people back to himself. But what a beautiful message. What a glorious hope to know that God has promised this, not just to Daniel, but he promised it to all those who would come to Christ. Amen. But this morning, we can know that our sins are forgiven. We can know that an end to sin has been brought, that we are no longer condemned for our sins because we are in Christ. That he has made an atonement on our behalf and that he has given us his righteousness. And that now, he is that holy place. He is that temple without human hands. That we worship and that we glorify God. I would encourage you as you spend time with your family today and tomorrow, just take some time. Yeah. Read the scriptures, pray, and thank God for the gloriousness of who Christ is and what he's done on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And we thank you for just the encouragement and the spiritual strength that we get when we are reminded of what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. Lord, the more I study, the more encouraged my own spiritual life is, as I am just reminded over and over again. Lord, of these prophecies that you would give, and Lord, we see the perfect fulfillment of them throughout history. It's a testimony. Lord, to you, to who you are, and the truthfulness of who you are. And at times when we might be tempted to allow doubt to creep in, we see, Father, that there is no other way that any of this could have happened but it not had been by your hand of providence and sovereignty. Everything, Lord, that was proclaimed, everything that was declared by Gabriel came to pass. And it happened just as you said it would through your Son. And Lord, we rejoice in that this morning. Lord, we rejoice in the fact and the knowledge that Christ has come, that he has made a way for us to be reconciled back to you. And Father, this morning I pray that as those who have been redeemed, that we would just rejoice in that fact. Every single day to be reminded of your goodness and faithfulness through Christ. Father, I do not take for granted that perhaps this morning there might be one here who's never put their faith and trust in Christ. And I pray that this morning as they've seen while the prophecies fulfilled, they've seen what Christ has done, what his work has been, that today would be the day that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Your word tells us that today is the day of salvation. If that's you this morning, you've never put your heart and trust in Jesus Christ, know that Christ stands today able Save. Confess your sins and trust in Him, the Scripture tells us, and you will be saved. Father, guide our hearts over the next few days. Lord, allow us not to be carried away with the commercialism of Christmas, but Father, may we just be continually reminded that that promised one who came was, as Gabriel would say, the one 
who had come to save his people from their sins. We pray that we may glorify you in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name.